Good morning, church. Our reading today is from Romans chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will this will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive root shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to, to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature... And contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay them? For, for from him and through him and for him all things. To him be the glory of forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Nice to see all of you. Uh, There's a commercial uh, I've seen a few times in the past few weeks um, uh, for for a phone with a new camera. Uh, It's not uh, not the most obscure thing for uh, you know someone to be advertising in in our in our time, Um, but the commercial basically shows people in a bunch of situations. 
uh, gathering to take a photo. Uh, so I think there's a shot of a kid's birthday, and the child is about to blow out the candles, and everyone's you know gathering around taking pictures with the phone. Uh, there's a group at the top of a, of a hike, and they've just they've summited together, and they're all gathering in for a selfie with the expansive view. In the background, there's a wedding party shot. Uh, there's people at the beach, people scuba diving, all these different like situations where you would want a picture are in are in the commercial. And you see the situations happening, and then they show you the still frame of the photograph that they took, and they're all hilariously bad pictures. Um, everyone's eyes are closed, or they're crossed, or everyone's making like a ridiculously awkward face. Um, someone a few times is right in the middle of the frame, like everyone's there, and like someone's walking through, like putting cake in their mouth at the wedding. Um, Half the people in the shot aren't looking or they're chewing food and you can see it in their mouths. And as they scroll through fast, it's, it's funny because you're seeing all these, like, all these beautiful moments and then the still frame shot of the moment is, is a little bit ridiculous. Uh, this is why in my house uh, we have a very strong spousal p- approval policy uh, for, any, uh, for any photos that are posted. I, I will be like, babe, you look beautiful and still haven't haven't gone through the spousal approval policy, therefore I'm in violation, and therefore incur a certain amount of wrath. But um, the feature that the, the, the commercial is highlighting of this particular phone is that you can go back and see the moments before the still shot and the moments after the still shot. And so you see people scrolling through, and they go from like the awkward cross-eyed moment to the moment where the kid is beautifully blowing out the candles, right? So you can adjust like a few seconds on either side of the photo and find the perfect shot. Isn't that fantastic? Don't you? I think it's Samsung if you want to run out and just buy that. Um, no, no need for any more bad shots. Some of you guys remember the day when you had to like take your... Take your film to Eckerd's. You guys, anyone remember Eckerd's? Come on, put this hand. I see that hand. God bless you. Um, and you had no idea what, to, what the pictures were going to be like. And then you just, so you just had to live with those awkward moments. And then your mom put that in a permanent binding and hid it in the attic to be discovered later. These terribly awkward moments. And now we, have, we, we live, praise God, we live in a moment of history where we never have to be in a bad photo again. Because we can just scroll a little bit over find the perfect shot. And that's it. That's the whole sermon. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Thank you for for being here. (laughs) So one of the things that the commercial makes clear that, of course, we already know is that neither the awful still frame that they're they're mocking or or the shot with the perfect light and the perfect expression, neither one of those is the the whole story. They're each of the, of the moments are part of the whole story, but neither one is the whole story. Before and after the still frame, that's the story. Those are the moments that actually make the still shot significant. Those are the moments that make the, the picture have significance and have, have context. Keep that in your mind for just a moment. One, one of the most... Uh, well-known parables that Jesus tells is the story of a man with two sons. And the first son famously asks for his inheritance early. And if you do some research on the, on the context of this story, it is ter- it, beyond insulting that the son asks for his inheritance early. He's essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead and that I could just go off and have my life on my own. I want the resources that are coming to me, but I don't want you. Terribly insulting. The son then goes off and he, he, he wastes 
Uh, he wastes all that he is, he is given. In, in the King James, it says he squanders his, his sustenance with riotous living. Fantastic description of the prodigal son. Uh, squandering his sustenance with riotous living. He hits rock bottom. And he limps back to his father's house, and along the way, he's preparing a speech that's basically like, I know that I don't get to be your son anymore. I've wasted that opportunity, but I could perhaps come back as a servant and just live in a corner of your house. One of the most, there are several shocking scenes in this story, especially as we come to understand the context more and more, but one of the shocking scenes of the story is the father running out to the son. And that time it would have been disgraceful for a Jewish father to run. He would have had to gather up his robes and show his legs, which would have been disgraceful. And so here is the father sprinting out to the son. And before the son gets through his prepared speech, he's, his father falls upon him in an embrace of acceptance and kisses his neck and puts a robe on him and gives him a ring that is, uh, reestablishes his authority as a son in the house and able to dis- disperse the resources of the home and, and the robe signifying that he's, he's back in. And then there's a huge party that's thrown. And every, like, that's the part of the story that we hear most, even though the story actually, especially given who's listening to it, is a story about the older brother, who, of course, we know has stayed home the whole time and has followed the rules and has been, you know, has been tremendously faithful to the father to a point, though there's been this sort of grudge growing in his heart. And it sort of explodes when at the end of the story, he's bitterly jealous that what's being given to his younger brother who's returning home actually should belong to him. He feels the younger brother's getting what he deserves. And then Jesus kind of ends the story rather abruptly. This is part of the, the mystery and the, and the uh, genius of how Jesus tells the story. He, he ends the story really abruptly and kind of leaves you hanging and, and you wonder why. What's he trying to do? I think if you had a still shot from any of the moments of this most famous parable that Jesus tells, you've got the son storming off with you know, these resources in tow, his father in grief, a still shot of the, of, of the son and all his, like, like at, the, at the party in full revelry and whatever the riotous living was, a, a still shot of the son in that moment. Or we know this is a story told to, to, to Jewish men and women, and this Jewish boy in the story horrifically gets down and he begins to sort of lower his head into the pig slop because he's so hungry, because he's, he's used up and wasted everything that his father gave him. Now he's at the, the rock bottom for him is when he's going to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Not only is it unclean, not only, it's just humiliated in every way. If that's a still shot in the story... And then the older brother at the end is sort of like you freeze frame on him and you don't know which direction he's going to go. Any of those still shots would be true to the story, but they don't give the full picture. Instead, anytime we see a still shot, what it does is asks us to reserve judgment, to wait and see just a little bit more. Jesus told this story, I think, in such a way because he wants his hearers not just to think of it you know, rationally or intellectually as an idea, but to, to immerse themselves in the story and say, what, what role do I play in this story? Am I the younger brother? Am I the older brother? To imagine which character they represent, to see what, what still shots do I identify most and how does that relate to the whole story? In Romans 11, this is a complicated passage. and I feel like I'm just giving that as a, as a disclaimer at the beginning of every one of these, these messages in, in the middle of Romans 9 through 11. 
complicated passage, but I think Paul is attempting to do a similar thing. I think he's attempting to, in in the letter to the church at Rome, this is one of the things that the the letter to the Romans gets celebrated for, is that Paul is essentially trying to give us the whole picture. Of course, not every single thing is going to be included, but Paul's going all the way back to creation and all the way forward into the promises of redemption and glory. And in the scope of the 16 chapters of this letter, he's trying to give you a full picture of God's redemption in the world, how it relates to Israel, but how it spilled the banks of Israel and relates to every person in the whole world. And in Romans 11 specifically, he's, he's attempting to say, listen, this is the story of God's work in the world, how Israel's involved, but how the whole world has been brought in. But he's admitting there are still frames that if you just see this still frame of the story, it elicits very confusing questions. It might be terrifically discouraging if this still frame is all that you allow yourself to focus on. It can look in some of the still shots like like Israel's going to be discarded and forgotten or that, that God has maybe forgotten some of his promises, or, or Israel's going to be replaced, or, or whatever. And that would mean something really significant. Never mind if, if we, are, we are largely a Gentile congregation, a word that we almost never use anymore, but, but it would mean something if God had stopped keeping the promises that he had made all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would mean something really significant for our ability to count on his faithfulness to us. So Paul, a trained rabbi, Uh, who had risen into elite status as a teacher of the Jewish law is saying, listen, it's really important, even if it just feels parenthetical to you in the whole letter, it's tremendously important that you see how God is being faithful in this larger story. He's essentially saying, here's a still frame, but hang on. Don't draw your final conclusion from this alone. He's saying you have to give yourself the, the chance of understanding a few dynamics that are at play. I, I think those dynamics, I'm gonna sum them up with this. With, with there are chances and there are moments. There is real mercy from God and then there is humility that goes along with it. There is worship and there is mystery. And, and I think those three sort of con, con, contrasting ideas are represented in this story and I want us to move you know, rather quickly through each. And this is a challenging passage. If you zero in on any one verse, there's a lot to debate. But I want you to see the interplay between these things. The first one is ch- between chances and moments. The, the passage begins like this. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. This is particularly related to the nation of Israel and their relationship to Messiah and God's covenant. But I think it's also a question that resonates really deeply and personally in many of our hearts and many of our hearts for people that we love. How many of you have, maybe not in these exact words, but ask a question maybe of yourself, have I stumbled beyond recovery? Have I gotten to the place where I'm so set in this this way of life or in this pattern of behavior or in this addiction or this sort of like anxiety or this depression or this, this dead-end job or whatever, have I gotten to the place where I have stumbled beyond recovery? Am I outside of the reach of breakthrough grace? And I'm very grateful for the answer here. I use this answer for myself when I feel this way, not at all. Later in the, in the passage, Paul says, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God to those who fell. 
kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Don't just evaluate based on this still shot. Now, there was a growing anti-Jewish sentiment in the city of Rome in this time. A bunch of um, Jewish people who had been banished for the city had just been let back in. And they were in, engaging with this movement of Jesus. Like, whatever you think about Jesus or his claims, I just want you to know wherever you are on the belief spectrum, you're totally welcome at this church. But one of the things when you sort of dig in that you have to grapple with and wrestle with is how this sort of sect of Judaism transformed the entire known world in a short span of time, in about 300 years, it swept across the Roman Empire and took hold in these cities where where people from every walk of life were banding together around the person and message of Jesus and radically sharing their lives with one another, being being radically generous. There's, There's phrases like there was no needy among them. The way they took care of one another was spectacular. The way they worshiped was spectacular. The way they, they shared meals, the way they did mercy, the way they, and, and that's, that's, that's our inheritance. Our heritage as a church is to live in that way. And it swept across even the most significant cities. And so you have the seat of power of the empire, Rome. And you have this, this sort of seedling congregation beginning to grow up, beginning to meet in houses across the city. And most of them who had come to faith were Gentiles. And the prevailing sentiment of their city was growing hostility towards the Jewish people. Now, we, we wrestle with this exact thing, is whatever we say we believe and hear about grace and welcoming and, and, and mercy and love and, and justice and, and all of it, there is a, another prevailing narrative that's going on in our city quite, quite often, and we have to ask ourselves how much are we being formed by this city versus how much are we having a formative impact with the, the, the love and message and way of Christ. Important question. Paul's writing and saying, listen, I know your city has seen the turning of the tide against the Jewish people, but you must remember your entire story gets its root here. Your entire story and, and, our, and our hope and, and faith is that, that, that God is going to, to bring them back in, to graft them back in to the story. So Paul is essentially warning this mostly Gentile congregation not to take take on the view or the wrong assumptions or the hatred of their city, not to take the still shot moment that they were living in and make it everything. He's saying, don't forget how grace works. Don't forget how you were brought in. Even if it looks like you know where this, this story is going, don't forget that when the, when the grace of God breaks into a story, it means that whatever the defining reality that seems to be present, it can be changed. It can be changed. I was, this past two weeks, I wasn't planning to share this, but this past two weeks I've been joined with um, some family and friends and praying over two, um, two medical situations where healing was needed. And in each case, it seemed like a staggering long shot. In one case, cancer had returned for like the fourth time and it was in, in a brain tumor and it just felt like we're, we're at the end of the line here. And then the other, there was a massive heart surgery and it was the second one. And in the first one that had happened two weeks before, the chances of survival were like one in four. So in this, it's even that much more reduced. And I found out, we, we were praying on the specific day for this heart surgery and it had gone on for hours and the family hadn't heard anything. They were supposed to be getting updates every 90 minutes. And Eventually, they didn't know this, but the, the surgeon called 
And the father picked up and had been in a daze for a while and got the information from the surgeon that they were taking the, the, the person off of, off of the, the support. But the father didn't get it. He, he didn't understand that the doctor was saying, this is it, it's over, we can't do anymore. So he hangs up and he's like, good news, they're taking him off the machines. And the family's like, what does that mean? He's like, didn't ask, didn't ask any questions. Guess we'll hear more later. So later, they come in and miraculously say that uh, actually, against all odds, they were able to find the problem that they hadn't been able to find for four plus hours. And right as the, the surgeon was giving up, they called to say, there's nothing we can do. And as this, this person was going into surgery, he'd been sort of like startlingly upbeat and saying that um, this is a win-win day for me. Either I'm going to be in heaven or I've got more days to live. Win-win day for me. Like not exactly how I would imagine my perspective going into the second in a few weeks of major heart surgeries. The, uh, the, attending, the attendant surgeon, not the main surgeon, sort of had that in mind and was desperate that they couldn't find the problem that they were trying to fix. So when the surgeon gave up and made the call, she began praying earnestly. And right as that moment, like right as the moment she began praying, the surgeon found the place that they'd been looking for for four and a half hours, fixed it. The anesthesiologist was literally weeping <laughs> As they recounted this story the next day, they all, all three surgeons came in and stood by the bed and said, we have to recount what happened because it's absolutely ridiculous. And the anesthesiologist couldn't contain. She's shaking with tears as she tells the story of this moment of prayer. And it's, here's, here's what I'm so convinced of. I have stood with, with dear friends saying goodbye to children this year staggeringly agonizing, tragic events. And still, I, I have seen the grace of God in those dark, dark moments. And then a story like this where I know people were like pulling together in prayer and, then, and, and a miracle takes place. And, and this is what I'm convinced of and I'm willing to sit and have coffee with you if you don't believe this. Is that when the grace of God breaks into a situation, no matter what the defining reality of that situation is, it can change. It can be new. You can be forgiven. Have you stumbled? Have they stumbled to fall beyond recovery? Absolutely not. When the grace of God breaks in, it is the most powerful force in the world. In the darkness of tragedy, in the moments of miracles, in the moments of blessings where we're so apt to forget it and just scroll to the right photo and put the filter on and say, my life is amazing. I was, I was uh, we had Brooklyn worship night this past Friday. Um, if you missed it, I just want to encourage you to, next time we, we have it, to mark it on your calendars because these are increasingly really sweet nights where we, we, had, we, we rent this room for a particular amount of time and so often people come up to me and say, I wish we could just keep singing in this place or keep praying or, or minister to one another. So we're like, let's make a bunch of spaces and there's people who meet in our office on Friday nights regularly and then we, we're gathering with this other church, this sister church from Williamsburg just to, just to worship and pray together and, to, and we were practicing Practicing loving one another well as brothers and sisters in Christ and being priests to one another, priests 
uh, the, this mysterious thing that we're called as, as sons and daughters of God in the Gospels is, is the priesthood of believers. And so we're praying for one another. We had this one section of prayer where people were going to come up, and if they had someone that they felt like was, was living in a place that was far beyond the reach of God's love, that we would just name them and pray for them. Not an arrogance, like we've got something that they don't have, but an absolute humility. We're longing for God to give them the embrace that he, and I just stood next to these, these people praying and naming their friends and naming the stories their friends are in the middle of. And, and, and what they had was this stubborn hope that if the grace of God got involved in this person's life in a way that they could understand it, everything would change. That's the sentiment of what Paul's saying in this larger meta-narrative conversation of redemption is that where we, we imagine just a simple moment, God sees all the chances that are possible and he can scroll through frontwards or backwards to reach them. Don't think from a mere moment you can determine what the chances are of receiving full redemption and full experience of the grace of God. I know we've been hitting it so much, but I want you to invite someone to Alpha. Alpha is a place where over and over again, People who thought they would never get to a place where they would consider like faith in Christ something as a part of their life, where they get to ask the honest questions and, and, and wrestle with them and eat wonderful Peruvian food together. And then so many people at the end say, whatever, I, whatever conception I had of God when I started, it's different than it is now. And maybe I'm not fully on the, on the, on the, on the ship of belief yet, but I'm walking in a different way than I was Whatever else that you think you can't do, I promise you, you can invite someone to Alpha. It might be the, one of the most spiritually significant things you do this year. We have cards for it and everything. So, all right, chances and moments. The, the, the next interplay I want to see you to see that's in this passage is, is between mercy and humility. And namely, that those who receive the incredible mercy of God... Don't become puffed up and arrogant and begin to make an exchange that they think they got that mercy because they deserved it, but that they continue to walk in humility, knowing that it was, it was God. Paul is a rabbi, as I've said, a Pharisee, highly trained. He's expressed his longing for his countrymen to be gripped by the grace of God. I love how N.T. Wright sums up this, this section of the argument. I'm going to put the, 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 his words on the screen for you. He's asking us to imagine that what has happened to ethnic Israel and the purposes of God is nothing short of an acting out of what happened to the Messiah. He was brought low so that the world might be lifted up. He was cast away for the reconciliation of the world and brought back to life so that all might live through him. God has, as it were, written the story of the Messiah into the larger history of the story of the Messiah's people according to the flesh. The only way Paul knows to under, how to understand what has happened to Israel is the pattern of Jesus the Messiah, the one in whom all God's secret wisdom is now revealed. This is, this is tremendously theologically important, more so than we're going to have time to, to even say today. But no, no wonder he looks at his unbelieving kinsfolk with sorrow and love. No wonder he looks at them with hope that some may still be saved. He sees in their rejection the face of the rejected Messiah and in his glorious resurrection the possibility that they too may be welcomed back. Let's give the story its proper conclusion. He seems to be saying, let's settle this old jealousy once and for all. Once you learn to recognize God's hidden plan revealed in Jesus, all things are possible. So, 
So you who have received tremendous mercy, would you walk in humility? Don't make the mistake of thinking that it was something to do with your resume or there's a certain way that once God got a hold of you, he was going to be able to use you differently than anyone else he could in the world. And there's a level that that's true. That's actually true. Your story is unique. Your DNA, your sphere of relationships, the the things that you've lived and experienced once God breaks into your life. But let's not begin to imagine that it was for those things that he pulled us to himself. It was sheer mercy and sheer grace. There is great danger When we imagine that we have earned what was a gift. I was just thinking about that this week. I had this phrase from the generation ahead of us that popped into my mind. How many of you have heard the expression, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? Literally no one. No, one hand. One hand. Two. Okay. No, we seriously need to see your hands. If you know that phrase, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, hands up. Okay, that's like five, seven. Okay. Great. Cool, this is going to go well. <laughs> the basic idea is this, is that wealth very rarely lasts. Very rarely is it, is it passed from family, uh, f- from generation to generation in a sustaining way. So basically, this is, the, this is the, the, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. In this particular strange metaphor, shirt sleeves represents poverty, okay? Just, you need that. You need that. So let's define our terms before we jump into this magnificent illustration that I can already tell is going to bomb. Um, so one generation on the backs of, usually on the backs of immense hardship, a war, a depression, uh, they work hard. They live incredibly frugally. There's, there's a, a, a profound, powerful work ethic that, that's present there. And they say, we're, we're going to build up a life for ourselves. We're, we're going to deny ourselves in many ways and scrimp and save and be able to give to the next generation. So generation one. Then the next generation, they see the work ethic of the generation before them. And yet they have a lot less of the intense pain of the hardship that the first generation was starting with. And so they're enjoying some more comfort. But they still basically like their parents are teaching them this work ethic. And they're enjoying some more comfort. And then their kids come along, third generation. And they have all the comfort and many times lack the work ethic that was present in that generation. So they often squander what they were given. This obviously doesn't happen all the time. I, I'm a little bit hesitant about that story because it's sort of, I'm like the third generation, like blowing it here. What do I, what do I gotta do? All right, let me get my life back together. You know, like my incredibly frugal grandmother who was a child of the depression and broke through the glass ceiling as, as started as a switchboard operator at her company, a lumber company of all types of companies in that time and, and ro- rose to the top, vice chairman of the board, put all of, all of um, my, my cousins and me through college by her, her hard work and effort. And my parents sort of live with that, that weight on their shoulders that we've got to make something out of our life and here I am like squandering everything. I'm just kidding, I'm not, but the, that's the... That's the idea. And basically at the heart of the problem in that generational narrative is when we begin to imagine that what we've been given as a free gift, we've earned. And a certain level of entitlement and deserving comes alongside that. And then our humility begins to get up and rise and become a little bit of pride and then become sort of a roaring monster of pride. And Paul's writing and saying, listen, don't make the mistake of thinking that you've earned what's been given as a gift because then you'll start to evaluate other people, not through the lens of grace, but through the lens of their resumes or their achievements. And and, and from the whole whole movement of Jesus has been, been to tear down these dividing walls and to give us back to God in redemption and to give us one to one another in covenant love. 
Don't go back to that old way of evaluating. The phrase he says is, don't forget the kindness and the sternness of God. I'm going to give you N.T. Wright one more time. Some people imagine God to be always severe, always cross, always ready to find fault. Many of you have grown up with a picture of God like that. Such people urgently need to discover just how kind and gracious God has been in Jesus the Messiah and how this grace is theirs for the asking. But other people sometimes imagine that God is simply kind and generous in a sense, and in a sense which would rule out his ever rebuking or warning anyone about anything. Such people urgently need to discover just how much God hates evil in all its destructive and damaging ways and how firmly he confronts and ultimately rejects those who persist in perpetrating it. The Roman Christians needed to learn this double lesson in the very, in the very first Christian generation and many Christians and churches still need to learn it today. That we can walk in mercy but also walk in humility. I think that we might be able to agree that the combination of justice and grace in our world is in short supply. We're like, so much ink has been spilled about how divided we are as a nation right now. And, and essentially, like, the, the groups shout at one another for a version of justice. But there's very little grace exchanged between the conversing parties. Or on the other hand, people who just step out and say, I can't deal with it at all. It's all grace. And there's tremendously important ideas that need to be discussed that aren't being discussed because we can't find this combination of being those who've received tremendous mercy and yet are able to carry that in tremendous humility. We need someone that's like a lion and a lamb in our time. Mercy and humility. Listen, you've been grafted in, and if you think there are people who are excluded for any ethnic reason or any outward reason whatsoever, you're mistaken. Just as you've been grafted in, God can graft them in. His mercy can go wherever it wants. The passage ends like this. It's a pretty honest worship song. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The passage ends with this triumphant call to worship. But also with honesty and acknowledgement that Actually, only God can see beyond the snapshots, ultimately. Only God can see the full timeline. Only God knows the majestic view that you're about to stumble around the corner and see. And only God knows how you're going to get through the immense darkness and pain that's just around the corner. And we don't know either one, right? God is the only one who sees around the corner. But it does show us this, and I think this is really important. Sometimes our worship just becomes like uh, saccharine, hallmark um, sentiment. It's just, just, just praise songs to God on Sunday. We're about to get into the most robust picture of what a life of worship is in the entire scripture. It's in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's that in view of all of God's mercy, present your life as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's not just getting goosebumps at the bridge of your favorite worship song on Sunday. It's living a life of, of, of ongoing commitment and surrender to God. That's a life of worship. But we have to acknowledge that even in our worship, there is mystery. 
None of us are in a place where we can say, God owes me this. God must explain himself to me in this way. God must come through in this timing according to my preferences. We're confronted in this worship song at the end of this passage with the reality that we worship a God that we cannot control. And that's all the more reason to worship this God. Sometimes we, 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 in the hardship of life, we, we come up against that reality that we don't control God, and there's a tremendous temptation in our life then to give up on the real God and to substitute a million other small g gods into his place that we do have a measure of control over. <laughs> because we love control. And there's, a, there's a, an element where we should, like we should love the, to order our lives. And we should, there are places where we're called to have control, but ultimately in a fundamental way, in a, in a reality defining, in a world redemption sort of way, God is ultimately the one who is in control. So we can't simply live as if we ourselves are our functional God. Paul's been saying, listen, God's telling a story of redemption in the world. It includes everything you've heard up to this point, all the covenants God has made with Israel. It also includes anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. He just said that just a little bit up from this in the letter. He's saying there's a breathtaking culmination that's, that's come in the promises God has made in the person of the Messiah. But ultimately, we are not the ones that are finally in control, God is. And so we're confronted with two questions Can you worship a God that you cannot control? Not in a nice, neat, like I know this is the answer I should give sort of way. But when you're confronted with the reality that, that you can't control God, can you still worship God? And the second question is, would a God that you can control be worthy of worship? And I think that question's a little easier to answer. Because a God that we basically control is just an extension of ourselves and then we're sort of just worshiping our set of preferences or our set of attributes of, about God that we're comfortable with. In a sense, we're still just basically worshiping at the altar of self. We can't control God, but you can know that he keeps his promises. You can know that when his grace breaks in, it can change everything. And you can know that with, with him present, we can cultivate a stubborn hope in the face of the real realities of our world, in, the, in a world where the hurricane, hurricane Michael takes place, in the, in the world where the miraculous happens on the surgery table, in, in a world where the, where the person who no one would have thought when they were a kid would be anything like near devoted to God, somehow God breaks in in like a Damascus road fall off the donkey kind of way. We see many moments, but we can't mistake them for the whole story. Our God is a God of grace. We have received mercy, but we can't arrogantly believe that we earned it or that it's because of our deserving or our resume. We have to walk in humble, humility because our God is a God of grace. And even as we worship this God and we say true things from our hearts of devotion, we sing out our praise and we live out our praise, we still know there is a sense of mystery, majesty, beauty, and power that we're not in control of. Our God is a God of grace, but he is still God. And the passage ends, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There are moments and there are the chances grace, grace gives. There is mercy, there is humility. 
There is mystery and there is worship. My question right now to you is, what is the Spirit saying and how will you respond? Some of you, you need to recover hope. That seems a long, long way off. You've had so many still shots that have discipled you in disappointment. And you need a recovery of hope. Some of you, for your own life or for someone that you know and love, you need a breakthrough grace to show up and change the narrative. What is the Spirit saying to you and how will you respond? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the layers of faithfulness that show through in this letter. And even in the most complex passages, passages that, it, it's like how on earth are we gonna get something that's meaningful and relevant for our, our time? And yet, the more we look and the more we meditate and the more we ask your spirit, the more you come through with your speaking voice. And you're able to unite the complexity of your word and the complexity of our lives into simple invitations into powerful and clear revelations of who you are. You are a God who keeps promises. You are a God who shows mercy. You are a God who can take a situation where someone is in the grave and change it. I pray, God, there would be a deep sense in Trinity Grace Park Slope this morning that the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is present in this middle school auditorium to lift us up from whatever we are in as we, as we unite to Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us as we reflect. Speak to us as we worship. Speak to us as we share this this meal of love that you've given us to remind us of your grace. Show us how to respond in Jesus' name. Amen.